Today is Wednesday, November the 21st, and you're listening to the Hinterviews podcast with Peter Hinton, produced by the National Arts Centre English Theatre, and coming to you from the Panorama Room of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Laura Denker. Welcome to this Hinterviews podcast as part of the 2007-08 National Arts Centre English Theatre season, a season of great classics for the contemporary stage. In each episode, we hope to take you into the intimate world of the artists and creative minds behind the productions on stage at the National Arts Centre English Theatre. In the Hinterviews, Artistic Director Peter Hinton chats with a guest artist associated with a production. In today's Hinterview podcast, Peter speaks with John Van Burek, Artistic Director of Toronto's Pleiades Theatre and translator with the Right Honourable Adrian Clarkson of a brand new translation of Molière's Le Malade Imaginaire titled Dying to be Sick. Welcome, everyone, to this afternoon's interview for Dying to be Sick. And um, I want <laughs> Sounds to, like you're dying to be I, sick. <laughs> I, it's so funny. Yesterday was the opening, and I woke up feeling a little, oh, oh, what's that? What's that? And I started doing the opening scene of the play. <laughs> and by the, clo- the end of the show last night, I'm like, oh, I'm sick. <laughs> but um, I really am sick, too. <laughs> Not faking it. Uh, John, I'm very, very excited to have John here today. John is an incredibly important person in Canadian theatre. And John uh, is one of the very first people to bring the plays of Quebec to English Canada in translation. He currently now is the artistic director of a company named Pleiades Theatre in Toronto that is a theatre company that's dedicated to works in translation, both plays from Quebec and also plays from around the world. So uh, he, he, to me, is a, personally an incredibly important person because when I was a young person growing up in Toronto, I remember going to the Tarragon Theatre and seeing the productions of Michel Tremblay, of Damne Manon, Sacre Sandra, of Hosanna, Forever Yours, Mary Lou, these incredible plays that were translated by John uh, with Bill Glasgow, who was the artistic director of the Tarragon Theatre. But John is uh, also a director as well as being a translator. Uh, Most recently with Pleiades, he has directed productions, revivals of Hosanna, The Amorous Servant, Beau Jest and Beautiful Deeds, three plays by Marivaux, uh, Mr. Van Burek has taught at the National Theatre School, the Carnegie Mellon University, York University, and at Nottingham School for Performing Arts. And it was also the founding artistic director of Théâtre Français de Toronto, which just celebrated their 40th anniversary on Thursday night. So please join me in welcoming John Van Burek to the National Arts Centre. Thank you, Peter. Okay. 
Thank you. Peter makes me sound far more important than I am, believe me. No, you are important. You are, you are important. It is very important, I think, what you've well, um, I, created. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I think actually it is extremely important to do this kind of thing, to, to try to bridge cultural gaps. And that's really, I mean, you know, here in Canada, of course, we all have that staring us in the face all the time, unlike most other countries, really. Uh, there aren't a lot of countries where that's the case. Uh-huh. And, uh, um, and that's really what got me started on all of this, because... When I was young and foolish, I started a French theater in Toronto. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, who with any brains would even dream of such a thing? And, uh, you know, I, I left the company in 1992, but uh, 40 years after I started it, you know, there it is. It's, uh, it's fantastic. And, and uh, I think a lot of us probably back then, I mean, that was in 1970, 71, that I really became, uh, I started as a full-blown company. It was first created in 67, a centennial project. And uh, like so many things in this country, you know, 1967 uh, uh, made a huge difference in our country. It's amazing. Uh, this place is a centennial project. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I think a lot of us forget. Uh, and of course, maybe, maybe a, lot of, a lot of us in this room forget, but a lot of younger people never knew <laughs> what happened in 1967. You know? uh, he probably wasn't even born yet, but... Uh, uh, it's, it really is fantastic that, that we could do that in 1967. Uh, we were encouraged to do things. Uh, money was made available, and we people who had ideas could could you know, jump on them and start things up. And uh, in Toronto alone, it's really phenomenal because I started my company at the same time the Tarragon Theater was starting. Uh, theater Past Mirai, Factory Theater was starting. Uh, many dance companies, art galleries were all of a sudden just blossoming everywhere. And uh, so with, with my company at the time, and I think this is probably typical of, of youth, we don't really know what we're doing. We don't realize what we're doing. Uh, or we don't realize that it's important. We're doing what we want to do, what we believe in, what we're, what we're passionate about. And it's only later that somebody tells us it's important, uh, that it means something. Uh, you know, because... We don't have that perspective uh, when, when we're starting out. And it's probably just as well, because I think that a lot of times, once we become aware of importance, then all of a sudden we kind of get paralyzed somehow, you know? Um, but when we're doing things naturally uh, and instinctively and, uh, and passionately and not you know, thinking about larger pictures in a way, there's more truth to them. And, and, that's, and that, in fact, is what makes them important. So back in the 60s when you were younger and foolish <laughs> and setting up French theaters in Toronto, <laughs> translating the plays Not as foolish Quebec, as I am now, but... No. Well, <laughs> then how long ago? Five, six years ago? You form a new company again. Yes, talk about foolish. Right? theater. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Well, and th- what, what, what was behind that? Uh, well, you know, what's amazing is what was behind that was all the years that I had spent working in French. And uh, I discovered in over those years all kinds of plays uh, through the French language. Plays that I, uh, finally dawned on me. said, I never see these things in English. I've only discovered them because... I speak French. Why, do, why don't they exist in English? Or why do I never see them in English? And 
I realize that living certainly in Toronto, and probably it's a, it's a North American phenomenon, we're a very Anglo-centric people. Uh, we have such a powerful and massive resource in the English language. The United States, Britain, English Canada, I mean Australia, we don't see much from Australia, but still, the English-speaking world produces a huge amount of stuff, and we just take it in. And we actually don't often think about the fact that, believe it or not, there's other stuff out there. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and it was because I was working in French that I came across all kinds of plays that had been translated into French from other languages. And uh, this, this particularly hit me when I, I had a sabbatical year after I left Le, <coughs> pardon me, Le, Le Théâtre Français. I went and spent a year in England and in France. And I saw all sorts of things then by getting out of my own kind of little milieu that really opened my eyes. And I started thinking about all these other possibilities. I came back to Toronto and I, I was traveling quite a bit because I was working freelance and I was working in various places in the world. And in 1997, I founded this company, Pleiades Theatre, and uh, devoted to translation, to doing plays from around the world that I believed that people in Toronto would not have the opportunity to see if I didn't do them. Um, so what are some the, of those plays? Well, um, <clears throat> the first one that I did, believe it or not, was a Michel Tremblay play that had been written many years ago but had not been produced in Toronto. And oh, was so, that uh, Marcel, Pursu Marcel Pursued by the Hounds? Uh -huh. Yeah, which is a fantastic play, very powerful play. But no one had done it. And so I took it upon myself to say, okay, this is my starting point. And also, it was, it was amazing because it remained very Canadian. There were lots of things that are Canadian that still need to be seen that come from our other language. So that was the, the, the kickoff production. And I went on to do uh, three Marivaux plays. Marivaux is an 18th century French playwright, an absolutely fantastic playwright. Wonderful playwright. We hardly ever see him. Anybody in heard of Marivaux? Yeah. Good. Good, but I bet you there are a lot who haven't. Uh, I, I certainly realized when I did it that many people had never heard of Marivaux. And he's a, an amazing playwright. And so I did three plays by him. Didn't you? You worked on, I think, the first and only production of a Marivaux play that the Stratford, Stratford. Festival ever did. That's right. They've done one play of his. Yep, and it's because I'd done it in Toronto... Yeah. Uh, the Stratford Festival picked that up. They did a new production of it, but it was because I'd done it there. And the audiences in Stratford were absolutely gobsmacked. They loved it. It was a beautiful play. And nobody knew anything about this guy. And, uh, you know, like Moliere, like Shakespeare, he wrote about 30 plays. It's fantastic. And then I did, um, uh, I produced a Russian play that my wife translated, a uh, modern Russian novel by Bulgakov. Some of you may have heard of Bulgakov, and just an incredible writer. And she adapted uh, a short uh, novel into a play, translated it from Russian into French and English. And we did it in both French and English with the same cast. I teamed up with the Théâtre Français and we did the same production. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story. Just amazing. And there too, something that people were just amazed by. And part of the reason that I formed the company was also because 
we want to get people from many cultural groups into our theaters. We have, and uh, I'm sure that many of you can appreciate this, uh, a challenge in this country uh, of having the people who are in our audiences look like all the people who are walking around on the streets. And they don't. Most of the people in our audiences look like us. And you go, you, especially in a city like Toronto, but I know Ottawa is no different. You walk out in the street and all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, there's a big disconnect here. So part of my aim has also been, and this is a more long-term goal, to, to do things that are going to broaden the theater-going audience and provide uh, some kind of great discovery for, for people who wouldn't see these things otherwise. So the Goldoni play that I did, an 18th century Italian playwright. Uh, some of you have probably heard of um, A Servant of Two Masters. That's the best-known Goldoni play. But he wrote 50, 150 plays. Amazing, the output of this guy. And I had discovered this one play in French, and I loved it. I saw it in Paris at the Comédie Française, and it was a beautiful, beautiful play. And so I started looking for it in English. It had never been translated into English. Go figure. So I did it. And it was fantastic. It was a beautiful, beautiful show. It, it's, it really is true because um, when John and I first began to talk about this production, some of you are going to see this afternoon, I'm thinking, okay, when have I seen The Imaginary Invalid? It has its more traditionally translated. I never have. And I mentioned this to Paul Lefebvre in the French theater, and he looked at me and he said, Peter, you've got to really, you know. Yeah, what planet You should you be from? knowing Moliere. <laughs> I said, well, where would I see it? He said, you're kidding. It's never been done in Toronto? I said, no. It was never done at Stratford? I said, twice. maybe once or twice, twice, but many, many years ago. Many years ago, yeah. But it's not something, maybe in a university, that would be. Yep. So I was so excited that you and Adrian Clarkson had taken on this project. Okay, what's the connection with Adrian? <laughs> How did that come about? That's the big question everybody asks. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a really sweet story, actually, and it comes back to Bill Glasgow, uh, ironically. Uh, I guess it's... Uh, proof of how, uh, you know, somebody, somebody like that can be uh, a, a really uh, important piece of glue. Uh, yeah. Bill uh, Glasgow and I were very old friends, and we, we actually met and started working together uh, when he founded the Tarragon in 1971-72, and I founded the Théâtre Français at the same time. And we started working on Michel Tremblay. And uh, th through the rest of our lives, we were very close friends and colleagues and did all kinds of things together. And um, Adrian and Bill were also very old friends. Uh, from, they went to school from, together. They went to school together in graduate school. They met in graduate school at U of T. And um, so, or even undergraduate school, I guess. But in any case, it was when Bill died three years ago, Adrian uh, mentioned to me, uh, at that time, she said, look, if ever there's a project that you think it might be fun to do together, you know, uh, to sort of keep this legacy alive of uh, Bill, uh, let, let's, let's talk about it. I thought, wow. And she was still governor general at the time, and I said, well, terrific. You know, I wasn't used to having the GG come up to me and say, you want to translate a play? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I thought, well, all right, fine. And um, we had known one another for a long, long time as well. Uh, and then, I don't know, Eight months later, or whenever it was, I decided that I was going to do this play. I mentioned it to her, and she said, well, how about it? 
Do you want to do it? By this time, of course, she was, she was freer. Um, not very, but uh, <laughs> freer. And anyway, so we launched into it. And um, I did a, a, a draft. I put it into English. And then the two of us sat down together. And we went through it line by line, uh, in French, in English, in French, in English. Every single line we did went about three times. We went over the whole thing aloud. And if anybody's ever done any translation, uh, I, I, you know, you'll know what I mean. If you haven't, if ever you want to, aloud. That's the way to do it. No matter what, it, if it's a cereal box, hear it. Hear it, talk it, speak it, and feel it. And uh, so that's what we would do. And our aim in the whole thing was to make sure that the English version was not one syllable longer than it is in French. And that's what wow. we set out as a goal, and we've, we've done it. We have this very unique challenge here in Canada, right? Because when we look at plays by Moliere, they're often translated by American or British translators. So you'll get crazy things like in Jean Henri plays, yes. people walking around saying, Jolly oh, good. what a lot of poppycock, and things <laughs> yes. like that. And you go, yes, that's right. <laughs> what, is the re- what did they really say? So we're sort right. of seeing through another filter. That's right. Um, what was it like taking on the Moliere? What was your aim to give a Canadianness to it, or well, that's, it's not set in Saskatchewan. This no, 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 it's not set in Saskatchewan in, in, in 1983. No, it's uh, it's it's in France, and our aim was to retain and reveal, actually, more than retain, because you don't want to just hold it back, but to reveal the real power of Molière and. Uh, Something that I'd sort of been aware of for a long time is that we don't, as Peter said, we, first of all, we don't know Moliere in English. We think we know Moliere in English, but we don't really. We, who gets a chance to see it? And, uh, but Moliere is often perceived uh, quite wrongly in English as being, because he's a classic French playwright, he must be like Shakespeare. Well, he's not. He never even heard of Shakespeare. And uh, his, his language, everything about the construction of his plays and the style of acting is totally different. And it really is, for us as Canadians, it's a fantastic uh, pendant to the English side that we have because our English culture is built on Shakespeare. That's the, really the bedrock of, 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 of our sense of literature and, and theater and, and dramatic language, all those things. Well, the same holds true for Moliere in French. But the difference is that Moliere is 100% Latin and Shakespeare is 100% English. And the two are not at all the same, as we all know from, from everyday life. But So why wouldn't it be the same in theater? And Moliere's use of theater is so incredibly dynamic. Shakespeare has these fabulous passages and descriptions that we all love and they're absolutely unbeatable. On the other hand, Moliere has very, there are very few things that people quote from Moliere. People don't walk around citing Moliere like we do Shakespeare because it's all action. It's entirely action. And the, uh, it, this comes from the Latin theater. He grew up as a young man writing plays in the provinces because he, he had to leave Paris because he was broke and you know, ruined. There's a, there's a whole story behind that. But he, he learned his trade as a playwright touring the provinces in France, and he only started writing plays to, so that his company could survive because they were doing uh, Italian Commedia dell'arte style plays, which... 
really are not plays in the sense that we know them. People work from a canvas, an idea. There's a series of, of events, and it's a typical story, uh, and the actors improvise on this, and they actually are never saying the same things twice. But they, because they know how the story works so well, they all have a great sense of timing and all those things. They know how long they can stretch a gag and then they, okay, it ends and they move on to something else. But basically, they're all the same stories just being, you know, served up in different sauces. Well, Moliere actually started to write plays. And that was where he differed from the Italian actors. He was actually scripting plays for his actors. But he was using that standard Italian comedy tradition, where you have very typical characters. You have Pantalone, you have the young you know, lovers, uh, the, the girl and the guy, you have the wicked stepmother who's greedy, and you know, the second wife, and all these... The weird these, doctor. The weird doctors, and you know, exactly. All these typical characters that you would find in Italian comedy. But he actually individualized his characters. He wrote parts for them. And most of his plays were written in prose. The great plays that we know in English, like Tartuffe and the Misanthrope and so forth, they were written in verse. But the majority of his plays were written in prose, including this one. Uh, Le Malade Imaginaire was written in prose. So I don't want to translate a verse play. They're too hard. <laughs> but, um, but this is how he built his, his plays. And the characters are this incredible salad bowl of types. They're very, and I say salad bowl because they're very clear colors. When you look in a salad bowl, a tomato's a tomato's a tomato. You know what it is. And a cucumber and a piece of lettuce and a hunk of carrots. I mean, and, and it's not all mushed together. These characters and these types of characters are very distinct. And he brought to his writing that unbelievable velocity and rhythm and energy of Italian Common playwright. He, he really was like, for lack of better words, experimental. He was you know, like you watch him. I remember seeing the production of Don Juan at Stratford a couple of years ago, and this production, and you see him really pushing a, a rhetoric and political criticism to pure out commedia, yep. silly nonsense. To yep. like the range of style. That's right. It's, it's so a, it's an unbelievable range of style. And as Moliere went on, he started by writing, um, they're all kind of satires in a way, they're comedies, and uh, he didn't write any tragedies. He started out thinking he was a tragic actor, and he was a terrible tragic actor, by all reports. Well, first of all, he had a stutter. <laughs> And, and so, Racine was the great... And, and uh, Racine, who was in his company, yeah. started writing tragedies, and there was a big betrayal when Racine, at one point after Moliere had come back to Paris, Racine abandoned Moliere and went over to the other yes. company. There were only two companies that, that were allowed in, um, in Paris. And Racine split and joined the other company. This was a huge betrayal for Moliere. But Moliere discovered, fortunately, early on, that he was not a tragedian, but he was a great comic actor. And he built all his plays around one central character that he played himself. It was a troupe of actors, and he was the, the center of it. So as he progressed with these social satires, they became more and more pointed. And largely it's because, as Peter said, he was very experimental and revolutionary, and he was writing plays that people weren't used to seeing. So naturally, they couldn't be any good. 
I mean, that's how we operate, right? If it's something new and different, oh, well, this is not good. And so he started to encounter a lot of resistance and criticism from the people you know, who, who pronounce on these things. The king loved Moliere, but all the other people who were in positions of power hated him. But because the king loved him, he could keep writing. And the king loved him for a very simple reason. He was entertaining. He was tons of fun. And the more he went on, the more he met with this kind of resistance and antagonism and these, these kind of cabals that were forming around him, the more pointed he became in his satires and he was really going after people. Uh, doctors, certainly one thing, and that's, you'll see that in this. Um, the clergy, Tartuffe, is a play about the abuse of religion. And, uh, you know, all, so on and so forth, all kinds of things like this. But, but a lot of people really started to resent him and they became more and more malicious trying to contain him and to suppress him. And he actually became a very uh, political kind of issue and, uh, in, in the society that he lived in. Yeah. It's amazing. It's kind of last night, there were a lot of comments of people saying to me, oh, I didn't realize how serious a play it is. And then at the same time, I didn't realize how funny that was. Like That's it right. yep. goes right. back and forth all the time. Now, it's so wonderful, this uh, Moliere taking on the central character and in Dying to be Sick is probably one of the greatest central characters yep. in all the Moliere canon. Argon, the great hypochondriac. And um, what is it about him? Why is that character so... Enduring so great in the canon of Moliere? Well, um, for the same reason that so many of his characters are. He, you know, we look at them on the outside, we think this is a satire about something, about doctors, about the clergy, about this and that. Actually, what his plays are about, and this is what makes them enduring, is that they are about a man who is totally self-obsessed. In this case, self-obsessed literally with his own body. Uh, and we came up with the title Dying to be Sick because it is a hypochondriac. It's an inward-looking thing. I want to be sick. I want to get all that care and attention. I love it when people are taking care of me, when they're handling me, when they're giving me treatments. I want to prolong my life. I want doctors to do all kinds of miraculous things so that I will not die. And, of course, the more he does to himself the shorter he's making his life. But uh, all of his plays are about somebody who is completely obsessed with something. The miser, it's a guy who's obsessed with money. It's not just that he's a miser. He is so obsessed that the, everything around him is compromised. And in almost all of Moliere's plays, the man is a monster. And he's so monstrous, he's hysterically funny. And only Moliere could bring those two kind of very yeah, opposite You go from hating together. him to feeling so sorry for him. Exactly. Exactly. You pity the poor guy, and yet you want to slug him, you know, uh, at the same time. It's, and the, this is a man who is prepared to compromise his family. Uh, it's almost all his plays. There's a child. The guy has a child who who is in love with somebody that she or he, or usually it's a she, should be in love with. And the father wants none of that. He's got other plans for this kid, and the plans are for himself. 
It's incredible yeah. how egotistical these characters are in his plays. And Moliere makes them unbelievably funny because they are just so extreme. They're, they're, they, the plays are almost surreal in many ways. Uh, and the more I've worked on Moliere, I've, I've really started to think, you know, this isn't, this isn't gentle satire. We're living in a world of Hieronymus Bosch. You know, that yeah. those are those really yeah. fantastical characters or Bruegel. It looks like a Bruegel painting. You know, these all these people doing, you know, all kinds of really scummy things. <laughs> but it's yeah. it's what what life is like. It's there's a rawness to it. And Argan, the central character here, is so endearing because he is a monster and yet Moliere has put just enough as he does with all his plays, he puts enough humanity into this character that we sympathize with him. He's actually a sweetheart. He's a pushover. And that scene with the little girl is where we really see it. All of a sudden, Yeah, well, look for that. Putty. For those of you that are going this afternoon, at the end of the second scene, in the first yeah, act, the end a of scene act with two. his daughter that's very telling about him. It really turns... Yep. And all of a sudden, uh, you see a man that you never thought existed. He's, yeah. he's not only human... He's putty yeah. in the hands of his child, you know. Uh, and it's and as Peter was saying earlier, another thing to watch for in this, we we've put an intermission at the end of Act Two. The play was written in three acts. It was written it, with the intention of being done at the court. It didn't get done in the court in Molière's lifetime. But uh, I'll tell you what we've spared you. Uh, when he first wrote it, there was a very long ballet at the beginning, which is as boring as the day is long. And it tells us how great King Louis XIV was, what a great general he was, and what a great leader, which, of course, is nonsense. He was a terrible general. Uh, but it was all this flattery. Uh, and then first act of the play, followed by yet another ballet, uh, which, you know, went on. You know, people were in no rush in 1673. And, um, time to kill. <laughs> right, exactly. And so on and so forth. There were actually four ballets in the bloody play. Now, what we've retained is the one at the end because it's integral to the action of the play. The others are just fluff. They're filler. So we scrapped those completely, and we kept the one at the end, shortened it a great deal because it's actually quite long, uh, and it's very effective. But in any case, um, this, the play is written in three acts, and as, as Peter was saying earlier, it's all funny, 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 and, and several people have commented to me at intermission because they're discovering this for the first time, they're saying, well, it's funny, but, you know, so what? It just seems silly. Come back in act, the top of Act 3, uh, there's an incredible scene, all of a sudden, and this is, a di again, a different style, completely different style, <clears throat> between the two brothers, that is amazing. It could have been written yesterday, and it is this unbelievable debate, almost like Shaw wrote it, between these two guys about medicine, about what it is to be healthy, what, is, what is, our, is, is medicine in our lives, what does it mean to us, and how do we actually really and truly live our lives as, with respect to how we treat our bodies. It's an unbelievable scene. And it's the, also... The play is really interesting. It keeps unfolding. Like, you see the first scene, you go, okay, this is what it's going to be. And then the second act, oh, it's also this. And then the third... Oh, and it, so it keeps opening exactly. and revealing new exactly. depths within it. New depths, absolutely, absolutely. And it's a, 
And it's a stunning piece of work when you really stand back and look at the yeah. composition of the whole thing. And you're, this man was a master at theater. He was a great actor. He had to be. He played these parts himself. And he knew how to write theater and he knew how to make a scene work. He knew exactly how long you could extend a joke and then poof, gone. It's unbelievable. It's, uh, the mastery is just astounding. And, and uh, for us, I think, all of us who live and work in theater today, it is so humbling because like Shakespeare, uh, and this is something we don't often think about, Moliere and Shakespeare both wrote some 30 plays, about the same number of plays. Huh. They wrote some of the greatest plays in the history of the world, and they wrote all of their plays in about... 16 to 18 years. Incredible. That's two plays a year. Yeah. We workshop a play for three years. <laughs> wow. Well, it's amazing. I am it's really, amazing. really grateful to you that you have translated this work with Adrian Clarkson and uh, brought this production here. We're thrilled to do it with you. And, you know, we often do this thing that if you like this, you'll like that where we suggest other books and films and things around it. And I have a little gift for you, John, today, which is a little book available that you might want to get for Christmas called The Hypochondriac's Handbook. <laughs> and in it, it's a disease for every occasion and an illness for every symptom. And I dangerously started reading it last night when I got home. And I'm like, I have that. I've got I have that. that. So, so it's not a book for you, fact. because if you actually have the book... <laughs> but well, thank, thank you, you very, John, much. very much. <laughs> thank you. That's all for this interview's podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time when Peter will be talking with a member of the company of Macbeth. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to hinterviews at gmail.com. That's H-I-N-T-E-R-V-I-E-W-S at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Hinterviews. Until next time, this is Laura Denka for Peter Hinton and Company, saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Thank you.